If, you, if you've been here a few weeks, you know, a few weeks ago, I introduced to everybody here the word of the year. Every year now, we're picking a word to try and, try and keep us on target. And the word we picked this year is the word develop. And I said, there's two things we need to know about development in a church. Number one is you need to put yourself in a place of being developed. That would be in a men's group, a women's group, a mini church, something like that, where you can be developed. Even coming to church helps you start on the road toward being developed. Secondly, you need to put yourself in a place of developing others. You know, lots of people come to church, but it's a whole other step if you finally decide, well, then I'm here to do something, make a difference, help somebody, encourage someone, build someone up, whether it's with children or teens or other men or women, but you're putting yourself in a place where you can develop others. It's actually a key to the first step of putting yourself in a place of being developed yourself. It helps. It works together. This is what making disciples or being disciples of Christ is really all about. It's about development. That's why we pick that word. So what, what I'd like to talk about today and we're going to have even Pastor Eric Rebstock come out and talk with you about is developing men. We've been talking about children. We've been talking about youth. We're going to talk about men this week, women next week. And I'd like to pray with you about it right now. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, we come before you expectant. Expectant that you're going to teach us. Expecting that you're going to encourage us. Expecting that you would even give us redirection and guidance. But Lord, we know that doesn't come just from us. It's something you need to do in us. So I pray you'll help us understand. I pray especially for the men that are here and the women that are married to them or committed to them or even the single guys, that you'd help them understand more clearly what it means to be a man and to be developed. And I pray, Lord, our church would always be a place where men are developed and encouraged and growing in their character and their love for God and their love for others. And so we commit our our next few minutes now to you to learn to be wise. In Jesus' name, amen. What does it look like when a man develops? Well, I could tell you a lot about that. If I had time, I'd tell you story after story after story because I've witnessed it literally hundreds of times by being a pastor in this church for 37 years. I've seen this. I've seen unloving men become lovers of their wives, their kids, their friends, and even their enemies. I've seen irresponsible, selfish men become responsible, giving leaders who give and care for other people. I've seen fearful, cowardly men become wise, thoughtful, even brave guys. I've seen proud, angry men become humble and generous, giving of their time, their money, and their energy. I've seen men of low character who always seem to be trying to take advantage of other people in other situations, become men of high character, literally giving themselves away, their time, their money, and their energy. I've seen men who are rather passive and kind of just going along with whatever become men who are strong and bold. How did this happen? This happened because of their relationship with God and their relationship with other people. I've seen it multitudes of times, especially in our men's ministry but in literally every ministry of this church. It's been a beautiful thing to watch. I've seen God change people. It's like Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus. Remember that? John chapter 3, this, this big-time uh, Pharisee, in other words, religious leader of, of, the, of Israel. And, and Jesus is saying, you don't get it, buddy. You've got to be born again. He goes on talking about being born of the Spirit and born of water. In other words, you're born in the flesh and you're born in the Spirit. You need to be starting over again. You need a fresh start. You need to be born again. I've seen that hundreds of times here. Men literally born again. They aren't the guy they used to be. 
They've been changed by God. Secondly, I see in, in, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, where Paul, or 2 Corinthians, when Paul's talking to the church of Corinth about the change that needs to happen, he says, well, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All these passages just refer to the change that takes place when a guy's revolutionized, absolutely changed. It's like they get new disciplines, new understanding, new, new motivation, new purpose. And I don't know if you've recognized this, but maybe men, even more than women, need a meaning to their life, a purpose. And when a guy loses his purpose, he's finished. Oh, he may still be in the game, but he's going to lose. Folks, somebody, somebody gave me a, a YouTube thing to watch this week that blew my mind. It was this, this psychologist from Canada. He, he used to teach at Harvard, and now he teaches at Ontario University. His name is Jordan Peterson. And this guy, this, this psychologist said, we in North America, Canada and the United States, are in the midst of a crisis, a cultural crisis. And the crisis is among our young men. Did you know the leading cause of death of men under 45 is suicide? They've lost any meaning or purpose to go on, and they kill themselves? And this psychologist is, like, famous now. I'm not saying he's a Christian or anything. In fact, I really don't know much about it. But I wanted you to hear his warning. And the reason he, he was on the video is because when this guy gets passionate, gets talking, he starts to weep. It'd be like watching Dr. Phil start crying. Like, that never happens. He's so concerned that we got a problem. And I just wanted, I, so I took three minutes out of an interview he did on a BBC radio program. I want you to see this. Let's put it on the screen right now. With you, and you were talking about the plight of young men and how guys really need to get their act together. Um, you went on to say the lack of an identifiable and compelling path forward and the denialism these kids are being fed on a daily basis and undoubtedly destroying them, and that is especially true of the young men. Uh, this show we've covered widely the fact that suicide is the biggest killer of young men under the age of 45 in this country it goes on in that interview to say at this point to my astonishment peterson begins to weep yeah well it says see now it did it to me again look last night you know i was at this talk i gave and about a thousand people came and about 500 of them stayed afterwards and most of them were young men you know and just one of them after the other comes up to me and they shake my hand and they say look i've been listening to what you've been saying for six months and it's changed my life it's like i was depressed i was addicted to drugs Uh, my relationships weren't working out i was hopeless i didn't have any goal i started cleaning up my room and telling the truth and working hard on myself and it's really working and i just want to thank you for helping me and I thank God, it's so, it's so sad that so many of these men, you know, they've not had an encouraging bloody word, a real encouraging word in their entire life. It just takes a little bit of, of encouragement and care so that they're willing to set themselves straight to some degree and start trying. It's just a catastrophe that that's, that's so rare in their lives. And so, 
Yeah, well, every time... You see, because I see the same thing when I'm talking. My audiences are often composed mostly of men between, say, 20 and 35. Not exactly young, but young enough. And they're desperate for a discussion about responsibility and fair play and noble being and working properly in the world. And the idea, and, and to hear the idea that their lives actually matter, that if they straighten themselves up and fly right, that they'll have a beneficial effect on themselves and their family and the community, and that that the world is starving for that. And and for them as individuals, not for them as a group, but for each of them as individuals. So, yeah, it breaks me up. Every time it, every time the topic comes up, it breaks me up because it's so sad and we're so stupid. We're alienating young men. We're telling them that they're patriarchal oppressors and denizens of rape culture and 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 you know, tyrants in waiting and that and we fail to discriminate between their competence and their tyranny and it's just it's awful. It's so destructive. It's so unnecessary. And it's so sad. And so whenever I think about it, especially because of all that I've seen of it, it's it makes me sad, like deeply. It's so sad. Wow. Do you, do you see what Dr. Peterson is saying? He's, he's, he's sounding the warning signs saying, guys, in North America, we're in a cultural crisis. Something's got to be done to rescue the young men. They're going down. In vast numbers, the number one killer, suicide. Thank God for a men's ministry like this. Thanks God, thank God for, for something that reaches out and helps young men get direction, gets understanding, gets some help. Hey, not, not only do young men need this, old men need it too. Like I said, when you lose your purpose, you've lost everything. So I thank God for our men's ministry here. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was a young man. And someone gave me a book, a little book. It was called The Measure of a Man. And me and my buddies, we ate this up. We took this book to heart because we wanted to be men, not just kids. And this book showed us how. And all it was was Dr. Gene Getz, who eventually became my pastor in Dallas, Texas, and even a mentor to me in my life. He, he's teaching based on 1 Timothy chapter 1 and Titus. I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. What it means to the qualifications for an elder. And if you ever read those, he, he never mentions. He's, in both cases, he's trying to tell Timothy and Titus how to, how to build a church. He says, you got to look for the right guys. Guys who have developed in their character. He didn't care if they're educated. He didn't care if they were talented. He didn't care if they're good looking. He didn't care if they were rich. He didn't care if they were successful. None of that mattered. Is the young man being developed into a man of integrity, a man of honesty, a man of truthfulness? That's the man that should lead the church. And when you have men like that lead the church, it grows. It makes a difference. It changes the culture. I feel sad for Mr. Mr. Peterson because he doesn't know there's hope. It's like he doesn't know the gospel truth. We do. We do know it. We should use it. This is our opportunity in the midst of our cultural crisis. I remember after reading that book, I thought, you know what? If I ever become a pastor someday, I want a men's ministry. And God did that for me. He brought a guy named Bob Chafee to our church. And Bob was here years ago. And he was a businessman. He even became one of our elders. And then he decided to quit his business and join the staff and start men's ministry. And let it develop. Then he brought on Eric Rebstock, who's going to speak with you today and challenge you about men's ministry. 
So, Eric, it's an honor to have you here. Thanks for fighting for men's souls. God bless you. Thanks, bud. Thank you. So, I, I think my new dream in life is to have Marty introduce me in, uh, in every situation, right? I think that would be, that would be great, right? Uh, listen, kids, this is, uh, this is your dad. Uh, he's coming down for breakfast and just kidding. Right. So, so I love the Olympics. And so when I was eight years old, I was this pudgy, blonde-haired, moppy kid. And, uh, and I remember my first Olympics. They, were, they happened at Lake Placid. It was 1980. And I remember this moment, right? You guys remember this? Team USA beats the United Soviet Socialist Republic, this, this unbeatable team. And it wasn't supposed to happen. And since that moment, I loved the Olympics. And so I'm so excited that the Olympics are coming at the end of this week. Right? I was just so excited for that. And, and one of the things that I love about Olympic athletes is that they all have the same thing in common from these games all the way back to the original games in 776 BC. And that's this. They know that they have to go as best as they can, as fast as they can. That's what it's all about, right? Going as best as they can, as fast as they can. And so in a week, 91 different countries will get together in South Korea just for that purpose. So in 776 BC, the Greek word for as best as you can, as fast as you can, was spuda. Right? Not that you necessarily need to fall asleep thinking about that tonight, but, but that was the word. And it happens to be the same word that's buried in the middle of this passage. And it's our anchor point and our hinge point for this whole passage that we're going to look at, right? And it means, the way that the, the English translators for the English Standard Version, right? That's the, that's the version that we use here in this church. The version that, they, that we use, they translated it, make every effort. So spuda, or make every effort, means as best as you can, as fast as you can. And so that's what all of these athletes have lived out in recent years. And so they all have that same thing in common, and every one of these athletes know exactly what our main idea is for today. Right? Development is a choice. It's a choice. And so for them, it's a choice in diet, it's a choice in rest, it's a choice in training, it's a choice in literally every fabric of their life. And so Peter, the author of this text that we're going to look at, recognizes that for us spiritually, development is also a choice in every aspect, in every corner of the fabric of our spiritual lives. And so we're going to dig into this, jump into this right now. This is a letter from Peter. It's Second Peter. We call it Second Peter. It's the second letter that he wrote, and we're going to jump in in chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This is what he says. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." 
For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Right, so a big biblical question that we want to ask every time we read the Bible and we look at a passage is this. So what? Right? That's a good question for us to ask. So what? So why should I care that this guy wrote a letter 2,000 years ago to a people group that I'll never see, I'll never know, and I'll probably never go to where they were? Why should I care? And I'll say this. In this particular instance, it was because it was this man's dying wish. So imagine you're Peter. You're old, like old, old, especially for that society. You are old. The average person died in their mid-30s. I would be old. My kids think I am old. So he's old. He's chained in a dungeon. It's damp. It's dark. The guard couldn't care less about his life and would be just as happy to kill him as to let him live. He's in chains, and he's going to die there. He's going to rot in this place. Why? Because he believes so strongly that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he is willing to spend his entire life and die by whatever means necessary in order to share the gospel. So think about it. You're Peter, right? Put yourself in his shoes. Remember what you went through. So you're Peter. So, so you're fishing one day, and this guy comes up and he says, follow me, and you do. You put down everything that you have, and you follow him. And you follow him all the way to the place where he starts to die, right? And they call him, and they attack him, and they drag him away. And people come up to you, and they question you, and you deny him three different times. I don't even know the man. And then after that, you watch him beaten and crucified. At which point, you are so lost that a week later, you have no idea what to do, and you just go back to, when, to what you were before you knew him. And you just start fishing. And you fish through the night, and you catch nothing, and, and you're off in your boat, off the shore, and you see the Lord standing on the shore, and you jump out of the boat, and you swim to him. And you're so excited because you saw him die. And now he's standing on the shore. And he looks at you and he says, Peter, do you love me? Except the Greek language is so deep and rich that there are a lot of different words for love. And so he doesn't just ask you if you love him. He asks you if you agape him. Do you love him selflessly? completely selflessly. And you look at him and you say, Lord, I love you like a brother. I phileo you. And he says, no, no. Do you agape me? And you say, Lord, I phileo you. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? And you say, you know that your heart is cut. And you say, Lord, you know everything. You know that I only phileo you. And then Jesus, in his faith and in his grace, restores you. 
And he says, you are going to die for the gospel, and you know that in that moment you will do whatever it takes to share what Jesus did for all of creation. This is why we should care. Because like us, Peter was lost, and then he was found. He saw his Savior die, and then he saw him alive. He said to him, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and know that I am Emmanuel, God with us. I am with you when you go and do this. And so with utter confidence, Peter goes to the corners of the earth with utter confidence knowing that he will die in chains. So a dying wish like this of a man is one that we need to listen to. I love the book, Dangerous Calling. It's written by a guy named uh, Paul Tripp, and it's written to pastors. And there's this quote that just kind of set me aside. It says this, It is your job as a pastor to pass this glory down to another generation. And it is impossible for you to do that if you are not being awestricken by God's glory himself. Ephesians 4.12 says that my role is to equip the saints for ministry so that all attain maturity. And I love the all. It means that I haven't attained maturity, right? You just ask my wife. She'll tell you all the different times I'm immature. Like, I miss it. But we are a body of Christ, right? This letter is written to believers. We're a body of Christ. And so all parts of the body need to be mature or else the body just isn't right. And so I love that. That fact. And so today, my hope is that you leave here not challenged by a sermon that's been well researched. I don't want that. And I don't want you to be moved by my inflection or guilted by some story, but that you leave here recognizing again an awe in God and an awe in Jesus and what He did on the cross for us as our Savior. And I want you to do that because we've spent time drinking in Scripture and letting it pour into our hearts. That's what we're after today. Okay, so there's two different types of people in the room, right? There's men and there's women. So so women, I just want to talk to you for a moment. And guys, you can tune me out if you haven't done it already. I'll give you that permission. Start thinking about the game. So ladies... We're going to be talking about characteristics of a man. And just because I'm talking about characteristics of a man, it's not just for men, it's for all of us. And so there's something here at every corner for all of us, intentionally for all of us. But I I just want to talk to you about this for a minute. So some of you are going to hear characteristics about a man that you wish you had, right? And some of you are going to hear characteristics of a man that you do have, and you affirm those characteristics. And I'll just say, ladies, if, if you can, make every effort to affirm your man. Like when he does something that you appreciate, right? I'm a big firm believer in uh, whatever gets rewarded gets repeated. So when you see something on this list, tell him. Tell him he's doing well. Tell him why he's doing well. Tell him how it makes you feel as his wife. And then do something that allows him to see, well, I want to do this again. And then lastly, I want to talk to you, either younger women or older women or, or, or whomever it is that's single, and maybe you don't feel like singleness is that gift that the Bible says it is. I'll tell you the same thing that my wife and I tell our two daughters. Find a man who loves Jesus more than he loves you. And you will do well in life. Do not settle. 
And guys, if you're in a place where you love yourself or your woman or something else more than you love Jesus, you're headed down a tough path. You need a new starting line. So I know I'm the men's pastor, but there's something here for everyone. And, and one of the reasons I know there's something for everyone is because of Isaiah 55:11, And it's a verse that I find a whole lot of solace in. And so this is what it is. It says, so shall my word be. This is the word. This is the Lord speaking. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. My wife and I have been here at FAC for 23 years. So we came in as newlyweds, and I'm 46, and my wife is younger than me. And, uh, and so we are certainly products of this church, and we have been developed here. And so I want to tell you three reasons why I became a men's pastor 11 years ago. And, and so this is the first one. That God called me to it. God called me to it, but it was not an easy path, and it took 10 years for me to answer that call. And the closest analogy that I can come up with of why it was such a struggle was like me having my last $3 and someone coming up to me and saying, hey, for $3, you can buy the winning lottery ticket. It already won. And me saying, no, 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 you don't understand. These are my last $3. If I give this up, I'll have nothing. What are you doing? This is the winning lottery ticket. No, you don't understand. These are my last $3. And so that's how I lived out my life for 10 years. Just saying, God, I don't know how I can give up all this. And he'd say, what are you talking about? I have such a rich plan for you and for your life. Just follow me. And so I ultimately did. The second reason is that my wife was behind me 100%. I'm not sure if she wasn't behind me that I could have followed the Lord. And so she was following the Lord in encouraging me to follow the Lord and do what it was that he was calling to me, calling me to do. And then the third thing is this statistic. It says this, when a mother comes to Christ, her family will join her at church 17% of the time. But when a father comes to Christ, his family joins him 93% of the time. I got to tell you, I want the 93%. And so I'm so excited that I don't go through this alone. And the fact that we have 80, more than 80 men's leaders here walking alongside is powerful for me. I am not going through this alone. There are 80 plus men leading hundreds of other men here at this church saying, we want to see men develop so that they can develop other men. We want to see men move as best as they can, as fast as they can toward the gospel. So when you see one of these leaders, thank them for the impact they're having on men and on this church. It's a powerful, powerful thing. The adult team has this diagram, we're going to put it up on the screen, has this diagram that, that we use just to show what we're all about. And so you'll see this diagram again in the coming weeks, right? Carol Batten will talk about it, and Glenn Kantner will talk about it, and Dave Krilov will talk about it, because we're all on this team of developing adults together. And so we work hard to make sure that the process runs through this. And so we recognize that the best way for people to develop is through small groups and mentoring. Small groups and one-on-one mentoring, that's what we're all about. And so we do everything we possibly can to get men into small groups and men into one-on-one mentoring relationships. And so we start off the process in a way that you can explore. So we have things like the men's conference. You can just come and check it out. There's no pressure. It's one day. It's two days. That's it. 
right? But from there, you can start to engage and jump into things like the Band of Brothers, right? So we have a men's breakfast every Wednesday, and you can start to engage and see what this is like. I know it's hard to walk into things like that uh, without anybody that you might know, so just join me. I'll be at table number five. I'd love for you to have breakfast on Wednesday at 6.30. And then from there, you can start to invest in things like Catalyst 33 and the Men of Iron Mentoring Program, right? And really start to dig in. And then from there, start to disciple men. We have so many leadership opportunities where you can disciple men and then spin out and either impact FAC at large or jump back into where the men are, right? That's what we're all about. And for us, these are programs. I'm sorry, these, these are not programs. It's a development process. And so we'll just challenge you to get into that process. So when it comes to developing, I'll ask you a big question. What if you don't? Right? What if you don't develop? And so in Matthew 21, we see that Jesus has a taste for figs. And he's walking along the road and he looks off and he sees a fig tree that has leaves on it. So he goes to it expecting to find fruit, right? Because a fruit tree in the right season that has leaves should have fruit. And he gets there and he finds no fruit. And let's just say he was less than pleased with the tree. And it reminds me of Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17 where it says that a man is planted by streams of water and he yields his fruit in its season and its leaves are always green. Right? It's an analogy of saying, look, people who follow the Lord, people who are dedicated to who God is, are like trees with leaves. And trees with leaves, when the season is right, should bear fruit. That's what we should do. First Peter, I'm sorry, verse 1 of 2 Peter shows that he's writing this letter to believers. Right? Trees with leaves. And he's saying, look, this is what you should do. But the big question here is, what if you don't? Well, Peter answers that question in the middle of verse 8. It says, For these, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You'll be ineffective and unfruitful. So imagine you get to the end of your life and you're surrounded by all of your loved ones. And your great-grandson comes up to you and he says, I just found your Bible. I didn't know you were a Christian. I mean, talk about the epitome of a sad life for a believer. Talk about being ineffective and unfruitful. Oh. I love in verse 9 that he said, that Peter says he's, no, he's so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I'm nearsighted. So that means when I take off my glasses, I can focus on my hand until about there. That's all I can focus on. So all of you are out of focus. I can't focus on you. I can only focus on whatever is within this two-foot sphere around me that is pretty much filled by me. Peter is saying, you're like that nearsighted, nearsighted guy that can only focus on everything that is close to him and nothing that is apart from him. He's saying, you're so myopic that this is all you see. That's why you're ineffective and unfruitful. He's saying, look, be farsighted. Farsighted people can't focus on anything close to them. 
They can only focus on things that are far away. He's saying, be like that. Focus on things that are far away. So it's an Eagle Super Bowl weekend, right? Can I get an amen for that? Amen. That's right. We love it. All right, so, so it's a fun thing. And so, so in honor of this weekend, because we never know when we'll have the next one. Uh, it's been a long time. Uh, I'll just tell you a little Eagles history. So Eagles fans love hardworking, blue-collar, dedicated players. We do not like selfish players at all. So in 1995, there was this one player. He was a running back. He played for Ray Rhodes. His name was Ricky Waters. And Ricky Waters, on his very first game in 1995, he had the opportunity to catch a ball thrown by Randall Cunningham over the middle, right? So if those of you who may not know about the sport of football, you have the football. Start there. You have the football. Right? And then you have an offensive line and a defensive line, and these are the big guys that kind of hit each other. And then behind the defense, the defensive line, there are line backers, right? They, they're in back of the line. And there's a space in between two linebackers that is often open, but when you catch a ball there, you are going to get crushed. So, Randall Cunningham, the quarterback, he's the guy who, the hiker guy, snaps to the guy, runs back, right? He has a chance, he gets the ball, and he throws it over the middle, in between the two linebackers where Ricky Waters is standing. But, he throws it a little high, and so Ricky Waters goes like this. Because he was afraid he was going to get hit. And so, after the game, the reporter goes to him and he says... Ricky, you had that ball over the middle that was catchable, but you didn't go after it. Why is that? And Ricky Waters says, for who? For what? You know, I'm sure that Ricky Waters in that moment didn't intend to be selfish, but it was this long-term failure that happened over time that caused him to just be nearsighted. He didn't set out to fail. It just developed over time. You know, no one sets out to fail. No dad has kids and says, I want to be an absent father. No husband ever goes into his marriage and says, I'm looking forward to having an affair. No little girl ever grows up and says, I want to be a prostitute. No woman ever says, I plan to have an abortion. And no boyfriend ever plans to fund it. No little kid swings on a swing and says, I can't wait to be an addict. No one ever hopes or dreams or plans or means to fail. It's just a long-term lack of action that gets us there. Doing nothing makes us ineffective and unfruitful. That's what happens if we don't. But what if we do? So last year at the Boston Marathon, the runners of the Boston Marathon shed 52,000 pounds of clothing and gear. Hats, gloves, sweats, anything that they could take off. They wanted to start the race warm, but as time went on, they got too warm and they just discarded it. 52,000 pounds worth. 
And so it reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews, maybe the Apostle Paul, but the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11 of Hebrews. And so if if you want to be inspired this week, just go and read chapter 11 of Hebrews. It's this great paragraph and great chapter about faith. And so it's not just faith, but it's the faith of martyrs. And so he lists all of these different people who are martyred for the gospel. And I love the part toward the end of chapter 11 where he says, and the world was not worthy of them. And so he paints this picture. The language points to a stadium, kind of like what will happen tonight, right? So a stadium, but it's filled with all of these martyrs who have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel. And then we get to the beginning of chapter 12, and in the beginning of chapter 12, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, since all these people who have lost their lives for the sake of the gospel are standing there and cheering you on, therefore, since we're surrounded by them, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely... And it's this imagery of a robe with a hem at the bottom that just wraps itself around your legs and just doesn't allow you to run. He's saying, cut that off. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the joy set before him, endured the cross and is seated at the left, at the right hand of the throne of God, right? The writer of Hebrews was a finish line guy. Run like he did. He's saying run like these people did. I love what Jesus said in the parable of the talents. When people use their talents well, he said, well done good and faithful servant. Enter my rest. Can you imagine what the rest in the Lord is? Like we love a Sunday afternoon nap, at least I do, right? Imagine what it is to rest in the Lord. Peter was a finish line guy too, and so he had similar thoughts. So let's pick it up in verse 5. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, right? High morals. Be morally strong. And virtue with knowledge, and not just knowledge like, hey Siri, knowledge, but a deep understanding of doctrine. And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, like this deep devotion. And godliness with brotherly affection, phileo, and phileo with agape, a selfless love. And don't think for a minute that Peter wasn't thinking about what happened on that seashore 30 years earlier when he wrote this. He's saying, look, make every effort to make sure that when you arrive at a point of brotherly affection that you're always working to move that past that into a selfless love for others. Don't be so nearsighted. It always moves from brotherly affection to agape. That's what he's saying. Do everything you can to move as best as you can, as fast as you can to make that happen. And I think so many of us get caught up running parallel to this passage. And we think that that our life is supposed to be make every effort with your job. Make every effort to add to that job money. 
and to add to that money, Snapchat, and to add to that Snapchat, Netflix, and to add to Netflix your health, and to add to your health a vacation, to add to your vacation a car, and to add to your car a video game. And that's how we live out our lives, and we miss the very point of our existence. Peter's saying, look, this is my dying wish that you don't do this. I just want to point out one word that we might miss the meaning and significance of, and that's steadfastness. And so steadfastness, right? So we learned one Greek word, spudo. We'll, we'll learn another one, hupomone. So I am no Greek scholar at all. I looked this up online. Hey, Siri, what does steadfastness mean? I looked this up online, right? Because this version that we have was translated out of the, out of the original language, and so people used the words that they thought would be best. And so when you go back, you find a rich fabric of things. And so steadfastness, we can just lose that, right? And go, all right, well, we have to be steadfast. But these translators, in the, or the original writers, the word hupomone, the word for steadfastness, means a patient enduring. So patient enduring. So, so think about when you wait for something, right? So you wait in line at school to go to art class. You wait uh, on the school bus. You wait at the DMV. And you get to the end and you pay a bill and, and, um, and you get a piece of paper back, right? That's waiting. But they're saying, no, 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 you're not just waiting. You're enduring. And so think about enduring, right? You're down the shore. It's the middle of summer. It's 95 degrees the humidity is 100%, right? It's August. Like, we all know Jersey Shore in August. You're standing on the boardwalk without any shoes, and it is burning the bottom of your feet. And there are 25 people in front of you to get that vanilla and orange twisted together at Core Brothers. And you don't care how hot it is, how much your feet are burning, how humid it is. You just want that ice cream. That's enduring. That's hupomone. That's being steadfast. That's long-suffering versus hope. You're not just waiting. You're enduring for what's at the end. And so Peter is saying, make sure that you endure with the end in mind. There's a guy here in our church uh, named Paul Ferraro. And so before Paul Ferraro started the Kingdom Cafe, he walked across the United States for the sake of the Navy SEALs Foundation. So imagine if I walked up to Paul and I said, or called him on the phone, I said, hey, Paul, I want to meet you in San Diego so that I can walk from the boardwalk across the sand and step into the ocean with you because I really want to experience what you experienced. He would say to me, Eric, if you want to experience what I experienced, then you start with your heels in the Atlantic. And you walk through the rain and through the dead of night and across the heat and you walk up the mountains and you walk into the valleys and you walk through the desert and then you step onto the boardwalk and you walk across the beach and you walk into the Pacific Ocean. That's how you will experience what I experienced. And I think so many of us, of us as believers, we just want the boardwalk beach water experience. And God says, no, that's not how it works. I have purpose and plans, and I have deserts for you to walk through. And I have valleys for you to trudge through. And I have mountaintop experiences for you to experience me. But I'm in all of it. 
And you have to walk with endurance through this life that I have laid out for you because it is good and it will declare my glory. I really appreciate the last part of verse 10 where it says if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. I don't want to fall. No one does. I don't want to fall for the sake of my kids, and I don't want to fall for the sake of my marriage, and I don't want to fall for the sake of this job, and I don't want to fall for the sake of this church. But I really don't want to fall for the sake of the kingdom of God and what Jesus did on the cross for me. That's why I don't want to fall. And so for all of us, this comes from an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ through deep intimacy with Him. Being always comes before doing. And so we look at this and we think, what should you do? Well, the answer is easy, right? Just give yourself over to Him fully. Not a little bit, but fully. But why? Why should you give yourself over to Him? Well, the answer is in point three, right? What did He do? He died on the cross for us. And so we recognize that development is a challenge. And Jesus, when he was speaking about wars and persecutions, he said this. He said, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. And so God is with you as you develop. And you know, we rarely use the various names of Jesus. But one of them that we do use on occasion is Emmanuel. And so Emmanuel means God with us. And we usually use it at Christmas, but it's not a Christmas term. It's an eternal term. This is the name of Jesus. And so as we develop, we know that it's hard, but know that you're not alone in this development. God is with us. And so, listen, we're going to have the, uh, the worship team come out, and they're going to rearrange the stage a little bit. But I just want to challenge you as you look at this. All right, we're going to work through communion now. And before we do, I just want you to rest in these words. This is Isaiah 43. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel. This is what God says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. This is the same Savior that told us to have communion regularly together. This is the same one who said that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and our mistakes and cleanse us from our past. And what I love about this cross, here's what I love about it. The ground at the foot of the cross is level. So it doesn't mean, that means if, if you're a pastor or you're just someone who walks in here for the very first day, all of our sins are the same. doesn't matter how big or how small. They all keep us from Jesus Christ. You know, 1,500 years before Peter sat down the table from Jesus at what we call the Last Supper, Moses stood before the people of Israel who were slaves in Egypt. 
And he said to them, this is going to be a rough night, but for you to make it through, I want you to take a spotless lamb, a lamb without any blemish, and I want you to kill it. And I want you to take the blood of that lamb, and I want you to dip a branch in that blood, and then I want you to paint the sides of the doors and across the top. And when you do that, the angel of the Lord will pass over you and you will be spared. And so for us as slaves in this world, trapped here, Jesus is that same spotless lamb who came for the sins of the world and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so with this cross here, right in the middle, I want you to just settle your hearts for a moment. What do you have to lose to come to the cross? What do you have to lose? You know, for some of you, you may have taken communion a hundred times, but you recognize there's just a pulling on your heart that you say, I don't have this. I recognize that I'm not a believer. I don't have this relationship, but I want it. And today is a great day for you to do that. And I'll just say, it's as simple as just saying, God, I've, I've gotten to the end of myself. And I want to start with you. That's it. It's that easy.